0: Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Welcome. Hi, Esther. Good evening. Hi,
1: CD. Good evening. Welcome, everyone. How are you doing, CD? I
0: am it's good okay. to see you. So I think we should, we're going to wait for Zach. But as we wait for him, I think we should do the, the usual. Let us share this as much as possible to our communities, to all the members, people that will be interested in the conversation like what we're doing. Um, Now, and uh, get more people in the space before we have um, Zach join us. Hi, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Pitch Africa. Tonight, we will be sitting down with the top um, African investor, angel investor, Zachariah George. So um, if you're working in the African tech ecosystem space, you probably must have heard this name. If you haven't, then it means that you're not actually in this space. So Zachariah George happens to be Africa's number one angel investor, but also his company, Launch Africa is currently listed as the top top VC company in the whole of Africa. So, Launch Africa have actually gone on to back some of the biggest startups in the um, African ecosystem. Talking about Flutterwave, Kuda Bank, and. Uh, a whole lot. Zachariah also happens to be the founder of Startup Bootcamp Africa, which happens to be um, an offshoot of the largest um, accelerators um, in Africa tonight. We'll be joined by Zach. Zach will be joining us um, very shortly. But as usual, as we wait on Zach, please do us a favor. Share around um, with members of your communities. Share around with people that will be interested to have a conversation, to listen to a conversation um, with the top um, investor in the African ecosystem as we deep dive into investments in the ecosystem as we talk about what are some of the things he look at for investment um, to make an investment and one of the things that makes our conversation very very unique and very good is that you actually have the opportunity as you listen to not only connect with people like Zach but also you know potentially be able to wow him enough to you know land an investment so I do hope this um provide value for you as we wait for zach to join us please do us a favor share this around and let's start the conversation this is the pitch room africa Hi, Esther. Good evening. Are you there? Great, fantastic. So, um, welcome everybody. Um, this is the Pitch from Africa. So, at the Pitch from Africa, wherever you're listening from, whether you're listening um, a replay of this conversation, or you're probably just, you know, um, here joining us um, live as we sit down with Zach tonight. Um, just know that this is the Pitch from Africa. Every week we have a sit down with some of the biggest uh, players in the African tech ecosystem. Today we are fortunate to be having Zachariah George join us from uh, all the way um, in his all the way in South Africa. He's joining us tonight. Uh, for those of you who have not heard about Zach, it means you're not. Um, being doing your due diligence across the ecosystem, especially if you're a startup founder, and if you're listening to the, a record of this live conversation, um, you know, just know that every Friday we host a, a live conversation on Twitter Space that we've later exported, and then now you're listening to the recording of our export. And you know, we're just here chilling, and tonight we're actually sitting down with Zachariah George. Zachary George is a co-founder of Launch Africa and also the managing partner at Launch Africa. He's joining us all the way from South Africa. I'm just going to bring Zach on stage and then we can kickstart our conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you're listening from, this is the Pitch Room Africa. Zach, good evening.
1: Welcome, Zach. Good evening. Good
2: evening. Good evening. Thank you, folks. Um, and thank you for having
0: me on the show. Great. Um, Thanks for have me here. Zach, listen. I know you are a very busy man, and so and you travel all the time. So, what part uh-huh. of the world are you at the moment? Um, I'm in, I'm in my hometown of Cape Town
2: um, this week. Uh, I try to be home as much as possible, but like you mentioned earlier, quite a quite a bit of my time is spent traveling on the continent, meeting either our portfolio companies or meeting uh, tech hubs, meeting other VCs, other investors, LPs. You know what it's like. So, um, yeah. I happen to be in Cape Town this week, which is great because I get to spend time with my with my daughter who lives with me half the time. And, uh, but yeah, but I mean, last week I was in Djibouti and Somalia, for example. So yeah, my my travels take me to a lot of places, but right now I'm in Cape Town.
0: Great, fantastic. So, I mean, we're going to have such a wonderful conversation. So um, for those of you um, who don't already know this, because there's a lot of information out there on Zach and the work he's doing in the African ecosystem space. Um, So Zach, you grew up in Omen. Which That's is right, really, yep. uh, which is really really nice. Yeah, um, you were there till seventeen, you know, kind of like a geek, you yeah. know, yeah, really smart guy. And you know, tell us a little bit about that journey from Oman.
2: Yeah, it's an unusual place to grow up in. Um, Oman is, uh, you know, in the nineteen seventies, there wasn't much economic activity happening in the Middle East, so it was the GCC, so Oman, Bahrain, Kuwait, Qatar, Saudi Arabia. Um, my father was uh, an economist um, for many years, and he was invited by the government of Oman to be a senior economist back in 1976. Um, oil was discovered in the Middle East in 1973, and then there was a sort of, think of it as the equivalent of the, the gold rush in California, this was an oil rush. And a whole bunch of um expats from all over the world from Africa from europe from the from asia from the u s just you know from South america um just submerged or converged sorry sorry into the Middle East so they could build the economy so doctors lawyers engineers bankers um just built the economy so my father moved there in nineteen seventy six I was born in nineteen eighty two and um yeah my childhood was was quite interesting even though oman's in the middle of the desert uh about at the time almost half the population were expats so i grew up in a very international community of people from you know senegal japan brazil india china the us it was very very multicultural so i never felt like i was growing up in a, in a monotheistic or monocultural um homogeneous environment which um, made for some really good perspectives on life um, and at, at a very young age if you get exposed to multiple religions, multiple cultures, multiple belief systems it just gives you a very um, interesting and diverse outlook on life and that shaped a lot of uh, what I do uh, you know in the vc and startup world so my my childhood was a very necessary but important part of my you know who i am today so
0: yeah and who you are today uh, is um mostly mostly one of the most prominent name in across the african ecosystem which you're, is quite you're very kind you're very kind in your compliment. I mean I mean one of the things we try to do on the um on the pitch room, um Zach is we try to just start off with you know the usual right um the who you are the where you're from yeah. the passion but then we tend to get a little bit more complex mm-hmm. a little bit more you know you can say more controversial yeah, yeah, um, on the picture, Africa <laughs> and this is why this is why um our conversation don't um for want we don't send um questions beforehand yeah. because we want our conversation to be thorough yeah. but also very brutal and you know sometimes contro- a little bit of controversy is quite fun. Uh-huh. for those of you who are joining us um wherever you're listening from if you're here live thank you welcome but if you're also just catching up on the record tonight we are having a sit down with One of Africa's or the top angel investors in the African um ecosystem space in pre seed level, also the the, um, co founder and managing partner at Launch Africa, one of the most active VCs in the continent. Um, ladies and gentlemen, um, this is the pitch from Africa, and tonight we have Zachariah George. Zach, I know how much you love music. I know you started playing mm-hmm. the acoustic g- guitar from 11. For, mm-hmm. By the way, Zach is not all, all spreadsheet. Um, he's not yeah. all um, returns in 10x. Zach is actually a musician. Tell us about um, your love for music at 11. Were, were you forced into playing um, an instrument? or did you sort of just were you just drawn to the guitar at that um, you know, young age?
2: Yeah, I'm glad people ask me questions like this at, at talks, and not just questions about you know how do you, uh, about characteristics of venture returns because that gets boring to to talk about day in and day out. Uh, um, like I mentioned, like I mentioned, I grew up in the Middle East in the 1980s, and this was a world before internet, a world before cell phones, something you just couldn't imagine if you're in your 20s today. So. Uh, if you remember, you know, there, there were some beautiful things in life that people looked forward to. Um, a meal, a glass of wine, reading a book, going out for a walk, climbing a mountain, swimming in the sea. These were things that people did when there were no phones and no internet. And sometimes I, I actually long for those days. Um, so music, you know, when I was 11 or 12, I, I, I was never forced into anything. I was um I was a very voracious reader so I used to read a lot uh I tell people I you know, I I'd, I'd, I'd read almost all of Hemingway's novels before I turned 15 I'd read a lot of fiction and non-fiction this was back in the day in the in the 80s where you had encyclopedias I'm not sure if, uh, how how old people are here but encyclopedia britannica the world book um so it was it was it was a time and age where because you had no cable tv internet and cell phones you could actually read um, listen to good music lps i'm talking all kinds of genres pop rock and roll blues jazz traditional it was just and you know one fine day when i was 11 or 12 years old uh, i just said hey it would be nice to actually learn instruments so my my parents got me a guitar for my 11th birthday, and I just uh, picked it up. Uh, it, it wasn't forced in me, and the rest is history. I've been um, hooked on music ever since. So um, I, uh, I happen to have a good year for music. So I learned the guitar, I learned to sing. Um, and most recently, about three years ago, I picked up the piano in the midst of lockdown. So that's something that I do a lot. So I, I've, I've always had this parallel life outside of my 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 career and my education where music kept me in check and sane. Um, as an entrepreneur, I always encourage fellow entrepreneurs to have a hobby that you are truly passionate about and can balance your, your ambition and your drive in what you do because without that, you have very little... Um, of a safe space to come to and to me music is is that music is a, is a way of, music is my is my meditation um some people can go for walks some people can actually meditate some people can do yoga but for me music is uh is is a safe and happy place and it and, and it actually helps me make better decisions as a vc because a vc you know venture capital is an industry where you have to use your left brain a lot it's numbers, mm-hmm. it's, it's analysis, it's equations, it's logic, it's algorithms. Whereas creativity, if you're an artist, a musician, a dancer, a photographer, a writer, you're using your right brain. And often when you invest in early stage tech companies, it is more about um, understanding people than understanding mm-hmm. products. So I actually think being a creative... I'm also a writer. I've written a couple of books and lots of uh, oh, wow. blogs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> being a musician and a writer and an avid reader makes me a better VC, if that even makes sense, because um, some of the best investments we've made are have no logic to it. But it's, it's a, a question of understanding people and reading people uh because of that create. So, so, yeah, so, so music was a very important part of my childhood growing up and continues to be a very important part of my decision-making process.
1: Oh wow. I find this very intriguing, Zach. I mean, I'm totally honored to meet you because I'm also a creative. I can I can
2: I can relate. I
1: it. can relate. So it's safe to say that music is like therapy for you. It is. It's it safe is. to be wow, fantastic. So how did you kind of um would you say you kind of like um how how would you say you moved into the tech space Uh, at what point did you make that move and did was music still therapy or was was music still suffering or struggling to find was it easy for you to switch into tech and still find music as therapy or did you get that confusion at some point um about music and and about um tech space
2: no, it's a good question. I mean, I mean, tech came very, very late in my life. I mean, I can, I'm not embarrassed to say this publicly, but I cannot write a single line of code.
3: <laughs> I'm,
2: I'm, I'm being 100 percent honest. Like, I think my, my my extent of coding is hash io in C I mean, like that, like literally, <laughs> literally, that is. I can't write a line of code, but I can understand what the outputs of a good set of um, you know algorithms should 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 result in so even though i can't or i haven't bothered learning how to code i can I can tell bullshit from the real the real deal because i've I've worked with so many developers and designers UX uh, and UI folks over the last um well ten years. But tech came very late in my life. I was uh, I was a bit of a geek at school. So I grew up in the Middle East, and I but I went to university in India. So I'm actually I come from two different cultures. Uh, one side of me is so my my, my father is from Tanzania, um, from Dar es Salaam. Um, grew up in a in a sort of like in a, in an East East um, East African Indian household. And my mother's family is has roots in Persia, so in modern day Iran. Um, And you know, I I I come from a a background where academics and uh, science and math was, you know, is continues to be very a very important part of uh, a kid's upbringing. So I was I was always top in school in pretty much every subject you can think of. So the natural career after you finish grade twelve or high school is to either become a doctor, an engineer, um, you know, or a scientist, or sometimes you know a, a lawyer. And our brothers from Nigeria can attest to that. You know, every 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 Nigerian family that emigrates to the U.S. or the U.K. wants your son or, or daughter to be a doctor, right? Or. Mm-hmm. It's like a pecking order, doctor, number one choice, number two, engineer, maybe number three, lawyer. Even, even, even being an investment banker isn't good enough, right, in, yeah. um, in these sorts of communities. I'd say Indian communities, Nigerian communities, Persian communities, you know, it's, it's, just, it's, it's, it's the way we're brought up, right? Like academics is a very important part of um, our validation as parents um so my even though i mean i was such a such a rebel kid i didn't want to be an engineer or a doctor or any of that i wanted to be a musician i wanted to be um an investigative journalist and a creative writer and and yeah i mean i I grew up i grew up in the in, in the 80s and 90s where i'm not sure how old people are here but you know the early 90s between sort of 88 and 1995. The world had so many massive political changes. I mean, it was a fall of communism, you know, across the whole of Eastern Europe, right? The fall of the Berlin Wall in 89. The whole of Europe went through a regime change from communism to capitalism. Uh, you had the big Chechnya War. You had the big famine in Ethiopia, remember, Live Aid, 88 to 90. There was the um, the genocide in Rwanda. There was the Sarajevo Bosnia conflict. Um, there were so many massive political changes. Gorbachev, you know, fell down. The USSR disintegrated. Uh, China had big changes because of the fall of uh, you know Mao's empire. So there was so much happening. And as a little kid or a teenager, you know, you would you know there weren't tv and cable news back then so all all my news i got through the bbc london radio and you would see and hear of these war reporters and correspondents and my dream was to be a journalist covering international you know oh and sorry in the early 90s apartheid in south africa you know i mean remember Mandela being released from prison. So there was like those, if you if you go back and, you know, I'm not sure how many of you are history buffs, but go and reread your history books. Between 1988 and 94, those six years, there was massive international political revolutions and transformations. So at that point, a little kid growing up, really, do you want to be... You know, an engineer or a doctor, or do you want to go and be part of political movements around the world? And so, I never wanted to be that, but my parents were like, "Seriously, a journalist, an investigative reporter? Like, are you crazy? Like, don't waste don't waste the money that we spent on you to go and you know be a journalist." So, against my better wishes, I went and became an engineer. So, I went and studied engineering.
4: I
0: mean, uh, uh, yeah. I, I mean, Zach,
2: <laughs> Zach. But,
0: uh, I'm, I'm just going to come in. I'm just going to come in into to, to uh, you know draw out the little the little rebel in you. You are this amazing twenty something years old, killing it on Wall Street. Decided, <laughs> let me take two weeks off and go watch um, World Cup in South Africa. And then
2: you're missing like ten to fifteen years in between. But sure, let's let's, uh, let's yeah jump no let's let's, let's let's do that. You know let's let's
0: choice. let's just quickly jump. Let's, let's yeah just yeah yeah yeah. Let's jump. jump. Let's jump. Let's so, jump. Yeah. So Wall Street killing you yeah. in yeah. Wall Street. Your parents will be super proud of you. And yeah. then you're like, let me go to South Africa,
4: um, yeah.
0: a nation who by far most of the time most of the news that you've been hearing at that point was about appetite and yeah. all of the the, the, the negative yeah. stuff happening yeah yeah and you yeah. decided to go down to South Africa to watch the World Cup and it's been 11 years after that after yeah. that holiday yeah uh, did anyone say at any given point in time you were crazy
2: no uh, everyone said I was crazy no one even my own parents they they wanted to like disown me they were like this child has... This child has gotten has gotten bitten by some, by some by, <laughs> by, by some insect or some maybe maybe it's the the sleeping sickness of <laughs> I don't know what it was but it was uh, it was pretty crazy I mean I had by all accounts I had a great career I mean just you know the the the, the ten odd years that uh, that CDs sort of skipped I basically you know. Got a degree in engineering from a very prestigious university called the IIT. It's like the MIT of India. It's called the Indian Institute of Technology. I spent four years there. Hated it because it was so competitive and full of nerds. But I, I graduated from there. And then I went and got my master's from Stanford, uh, which is another whole story, but I'll save it for another day. And Stanford is like the the holy grail for, you know, tech entrepreneurs. I mean, you know, you, you go to a school and... Every person you there wants to go and build, uh, you know, a tech company that changes the world. It's the it's home of Google, the home of Yahoo, home of Facebook, home of Cisco. I mean, it's, it's just literally you're walking, talking and sleeping next to giants of industry. And it's also the melting pot for innovation. People from all over the world, irrespective of your age, your sex, your race, your religion, like if you can build cool shit you're welcome, you know, and if you think about it, and I tell this to people, most of the biggest innovators in the U.S. were not even American. Do you know, by the way, that, I don't know how, how much people know about the backgrounds of Silicon Valley's top entrepreneurs. Do you know that Steve Jobs is originally from which country? Does anyone here know? Where is Steve Jobs originally from?
0: No, I, I, I don't
2: yeah, the, this is what the American news will never tell you. Steve Jobs' family is originally from Syria. Wait, S-Y- what? Syria, what? Yeah. Syria, yeah. Steve Jobs was was uh, an abandoned orphan and uh, from Syrian parents, and he was adopted by a family in California. Steve Jobs is not white American. Steve Jobs is Syrian. Um, Interesting. Sergey and Larry from Google are Russian. Yeah. Right. You know, a lot of a lot of the top innovation on Wall Street, sorry, in, in, in Silicon Valley have, have come from immigrants, right? Um, but Silicon Valley allows you the fertile ground and space to come and be who you are, right? People from Nigeria, from India, from Russia, from China, it doesn't matter, right? And that's what California got so right against the rest of the U.S., um, and that's why. So when I when I went to Stanford, almost seventy percent of all the grad programs at Stanford University are non-Americans, right? Foreigners from Asia, from Africa, from Latin America, from yeah. So being in that space just puts you in a different in a different headspace altogether. And I was very fortunate to to be there. And then to your point about Wall Street. You know, Stanford's a great school, but it's also bloody expensive. So I had, you know, almost $150,000 in student loans to pay off. And for those of us listening that uh, that have student loans to pay off in the U.S., there are people in their 40s and 50s that are still paying off their undergrad loans from their 20s. The U.S., you know, student loan system is such a shame. It's, yeah, it's crazy. So what I did is, against my better wishes... I chose to go to New York City to go and work at a bank, even though I hated bankers. I thought bankers were evil, I think most of them still are um, but uh you know it's the only place where you can reduce your student debt in three years and not you know be paying it off for thirty years. So I went and worked at Lehman Brothers in New York for from two thousand and four. Uh, And then obviously in 2008, the bankruptcy happened. So lots of stories about that that I'll save for another day. Um, But what's interesting is my first experience with Africa, a lot of people don't know this, was in June of 2008, I had a massive head heart crisis where I was like, why the hell am I doing this job as an investment banker working 16, 17 hours a day? I mean, I'm not no jokes and weekends. And I get no joy or happiness out of it. Um, so I took a sabbatical for six weeks and I went to uh, to a small town called Khohe, which is in Ghana. I don't know if we have any Ghanaians in the audience, but I spent six weeks in Ghana in 2008 as a 26-year-old volunteering at an orphanage. So I was a teacher at an orphanage. I was a volunteer at a hospital I delivered a few babies. I had a very interesting six weeks. I wanted to do something that was diametrically opposite from investment banking on Wall Street and that was volunteering at orphanages and hospitals in rural West Africa. I mean, yeah, it was pretty, pretty, pretty crazy um, from a mind shift perspective. And why do I say this? Uh, people in the industry don't know this about me, but I, 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 I. I talk about it because it gives you perspectives. When you live in places like London, Paris, New York, or Berlin, you tend to live in bubbles, and you forget what the rest of the world looks like, and money and power and fame become the only things that matter to you. And if you step outside of your comfort zone, you you realize what your privilege is, right? Even though I came from a very middle-class family, um, the fact that I could go to good schools and work at good companies was a privilege. And spending six weeks in rural Ghana made me realize that I need to be doing more impactful things in my life. So uh, this was in June of '08, and I came back to New York in August of '08 after about six to seven weeks, and no points for guessing what happened a couple of weeks later. That was the global financial crisis of 2008, right? So... Here you have a you know, a twenty-six year old volunteering in rural Ghana and going back to New York City and then Lehman Brothers, a firm that he worked for, goes bankrupt and the world collapses. So it was you know, if I can use the word mindfuck, it pretty much that's that's basically what happened. And if stuff like that happens to you, it it plays with your head. And in two thousand and nine, January, I decided that I would transition into working in the world of entrepreneurship to make real change across the world with a specific focus on Africa. But I had no idea how to do it, so I kept working at Barclays in New York, and then in 2010, when the World Cup came to South Africa, that was my cue to say, okay, I'm getting the hell out of here, and I'm going to go to a country, South Africa, that I don't know anything about, Honestly, in 2010, the only thing the world knew about South Africa was three things. Nelson Mandela, the racist apartheid government, which was collapsing, and some lines in the Kruger National Park. Like, that was all that people knew about South Africa. But there was a bloody World Cup happening there. So, you you know, the whole world came to South Africa for two months. And for those of you that have been to South Africa before, you know that it's, Cape Town specifically is a beautiful, beautiful country, sorry, city, and uh, that's what brought me here. And what I discovered from an entrepreneurship and innovation standpoint in Cape Town completely blew my mind, and I decided that now was the time to quit Wall Street forever and try and chart a new career path, and that's how this came about. That was the transition. Great. Fantastic.
0: Fantastic. Um, So... Um, We're going to now move the conversation to a little bit more technical about the African ecosystem, your role, the role that you've been playing. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to us tonight, whether you're listening to the recorded version of this conversation or you're here live on this conversation, this is the Pitch Room Africa On the pitch room Africa, we bring together some of the most powerful players in the African ecosystem. For example, tonight we are joined by the leading angel investor in Africa, Zachariah George. Zachariah came from a background of investment banking, also an engineering background, but also he's also a, a musician, an actual art that actually helped him over the last couple of years to evaluate entrepreneurs a little a little bit better because evaluating. Pre-seed entrepreneurs, in Zach's own words, could be crazy, right? Just looking at spreadsheets. So you need something that, you know, excites the other part of the brain that you don't use always. So if you're here, you want to join on the conversation, please jump on the chat box, um, drop your message, or, you know, raise your hands and come up on stage, and we'll be happy to ask um, Zach a question for you. Um, Zach, so we're just going to deep dive into... sure investment um yeah, yeah. investment a bit but I just want to understand by 2011 there was nothing yeah. like venture capital in, in in the continent it was yeah. only up to 2015 2016 a lot of venture yeah. capital mm-hmm. that you know popping up in the continent but at that time you're yeah. very strategic in terms of how you 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 develop a fund so you you use you you actually use the usual uh well the uncommon route to setting up um an accelerator with startup bootcamp yeah. um, but from an angel investment perspective what company or which company um what entrepreneurs um were the first batch of entrepreneurs that you invest in
2: yeah it's um it's uh, can you guys hear me okay yes
0: yes we can yes
2: yeah um yeah, so when I came to South Africa in 2010, and I spent several years sort of consulting to big corporates around getting corporates to innovate with startups by working together. So, setting up an accelerator in 2000, in, in 2015, I set up something called Tech Lab Africa, which was the precursor to Techstars with Barclays, that some of you may be familiar with. And prior to that, I mean, you made a very good point there was no venture capital. In anywhere in Africa in 2011, 2012, the first real concept of accelerators, venture studios, and incubators only came about in 2014, 2015 at best. Um, so I was always intellectually curious about why... So remember also at this time, India had taken off from a tech perspective. The You saw some incredible companies. I'm not sure how many of you follow the Indian tech ecosystem, but, you know, Companies like Amazon and Uber never really made it in India. You had separate equivalents there. There was no PayPal, no Amazon, no Uber. So India had its own versions, you know, the PayTMs, the Zomato, the, 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 the Yo-Yo Rooms, the Flipkarts, the Ola Cabs. And I was like, why, why do you have this tech revolution happening in India in the 2012, 13, 14, 15 period? But there's nothing happening in Africa. So I started thinking about um getting large african corporates but specifically insurance companies banks telcos and retailers that control distribution and customer acquisition on the continent to start working with startups because you know one of the one of the the hardest marriages to to make work is the channel and distribution power of large corporates in africa together with the lean iterative innovation that startups can can create, right? So fusing the two together was the only way we could get founders to get traction on the continent. So basically build more B2B and b 2 b to c ventures and not Silicon Valley style B2C ventures, which is what people will tell you to do in the US. So I, did a, I started doing a bit of angel investing to your point in 2015. Um, one of my first investments as an angel was uh, in Flutterwave. Um, I happened to be introduced to, at the time, E, um, uh, the co-founder. But, you know, Flutterwave was one of the first African companies, uh, or at least one of the, you know, the first three or four African com- companies to get into Y Combinator. And I, I knew the Y Combinator team because of my Stanford days. They are all Stanford alumni. So I was recommended this company through the Stanford sort of YC network. I wrote them a small check. I actually had to borrow money from my father to to invest in Flutterwave, which is crazy. Um, and at the time, it, it's a joke. My father really said, really, son? Like, you're an investment banker with all this experience, and you want to invest in a, in a payments company from Nigeria? Like... Uh, you know, the old cliche of a Nigerian prince trying to, you know, give you his wealth in the 1990s through the internet. Like, what are you, what are you doing, son? So it was, it was funny, like, the concept of tech as a means to disrupt uh, business as usual was just a very hard pill for a lot of people to swallow. And this is why going through accelerators or incubators is so important because it provides a huge amount of validation from a design tech product market, route to market, and IP and legal perspective that very few other sources can provide, right? So this is why accelerators are so important. So I did a couple of early angel investments into some fintech companies uh, in Nigeria, a couple in Kenya and South Africa. And then I said, listen, angel investing is great as a proof of concept and traction, but why don't I build an accelerator myself um, and link large corporates with these startups. So in 2016, Startup Bootcamp, as you mentioned earlier, CD, Startup Bootcamp is a big accelerator in Europe, and their focus was B2B, which is what I liked. Um, so I got together after a year, together with my co-founder, Philip, we, we, we spoke to several insurance companies, uh, banks, retailers, and telcos, and eventually we got all Mutual. Uh, netbank, which is a subsidiary of uh, which which owns a big stake in ecobank um, uh, Woolworths as a retailer mtn as a telco p w c Amazon and Google to sponsor a three year accelerator or uh, well a three year program which was three months of accelerator spread over three years you know so a, a cohort every year ten startups each. And that was the first time that, uh, you know, the concept of going through an African accelerator, you know, was, uh, was pretty mainstream. Yeah, that's...
0: Zach, that's, Zach, yeah. Zach I'm, just, I'm just going to circle back to, to, to Kenya, right? So in, 20, in 2019, and this is a little bit of the controversy that I want us to just, you know, um, start off with. In 2019, only 6% of all funds raised in Kenya were raised by local founders in Kenya. So it means 90 94% of all of the funds that were raised in Kenya were raised by foreign entrepreneurs based in Kenya. And this actually has been a pattern for um in other places. So it differs from ecosystem to ecosystem. So Nigeria maybe a little bit different. Nigeria more seven maybe 70-30%. But we still see African, we still see um, European founders or Western founders seeing Africa as a, as a useful tool to be able to bring in more, to be able to situate themselves to access more funding with the idea that they are serving these um, emerging market. But then we are seeing local founders being left out local growth funders being left out of this deal and if we go further down that line in terms of the controversy it also goes in the area of i think this is a question that i've also asked multiple times in the investment network wherein where does the exit goes because a lot of the funds that are also being raised are raised by african founders now they're africans but who have at least spent a year overseas Studying study in, in in big universities like Stanford, Cambridge, Oxford, and things like that. So these are the founders that seem to be be positioned to capture a lot of this funding. Yeah, okay. Where do you think that bias is coming from?
2: Yo, now this conversation is getting lit. Jeez. Um <laughs> yeah, fuck. Um listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot straight from the hip. And I don't care if people take offense or not. I'm going to flip the question the other side and say, where are the African investors? Why are we still asking European LPs, European funds domiciled in the U.S. and Europe to start backing African startups? Where are the African LPs? Where are the African VC funds? That's the question I'm going to ask first. Yes, there, is, there was a bias, right? But where are the African investors? Let's answer that question first. So you're saying you're very happy for U.S. VC funds, European VC funds to invest in Africa. And if they choose to back, at least historically, to back founders that went to the same schools as them them, or may look like them, that is suddenly a problem but you don't care about all the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars that African investors, AKA that normally invest in mines, in oil companies, in insurance companies, in power, in property, in every single asset class, except tech, innovation, and things that their own kind have built. So you tell me, not you specifically, but people in the audience, where is the hypocrisy there? So just pause for a moment, because I've heard this discussion hundreds of times in the last few years. So you're very quick to judge funds overseas from backing people that come from a similar background as them. Why are we still in 2023 waiting for overseas funds to back our entrepreneurs in Africa? Whereas our own investors completely shun their own kind doing stuff. So I'm going to throw it back to you and talk about where is the bias from African investors. All these so-called, I'm going to just call it, all the Ogas in Nigeria, all the rich Kenyans, African Kenyans, all the rich uh, wealthy families in Botswana, in Zambia, in Zimbabwe, even our brothers in North Africa, who are they backing? Where's all their money, guys? Where, you know where it is? It's sitting in listed equities in Europe and the US. So can we start giving them some grief before we start shitting on people in the US and Europe that choose to back founders that make money for them? So I'm going to just
0: leave it at so, that. So, 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 so here's, here's a pushback. Here's a, here's, a, here's a pushback. Yeah. So the pushback is, a lot of the LPs and VCs that are in Western countries okay use these data sets to actually amplify how much impact investment they've made. So that's the pushback. So the pushback is so the hypocrisy works in two in, in two ways. So so obviously there is an impending problem why rich guys in Africa are not investing in their in the ecosystem. Yeah, that, but, we, hold, but, but my question hold, is, why haven't we answered that question?
2: That question has been there since, since, the, since the, 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 the first and second generation post-colonialism, so 1970s onwards. Mm-hmm. Where is the wealth of African families going to? And why aren't they investing in, in African founders? So, why so has, that's, Can that's, I please have an answer to that question before I talk
0: about... Yeah, hold on, uh, hold on yeah. that. that that's, a, yeah. that's, a fair, that's a fair question. It's a fair yeah. question with a lot, of, um, a lot of complex answers. So m- the, some of the richest families in Africa yeah. um, are filled with controversies in terms of how they the question about their wealth and things like that. Even so, some of the richest people in Africa are even afraid to actually openly say, this is me, right? But that's a whole different conversation, Zach. The, the conversation here is... It's a whole different conversation, and I don't have problem in terms of us opening up that conversation. But now, when I look at VCs and, and reporting coming out of North America, for instance, yep. they can see that most of their investment being made in Africa as an impact investment, but they are investing in people that are foreigners that are in Africa,
4: okay, setting
0: up startups in Africa, or or people who are in Africa who have gone to the Harvard, to the Oxford. Yeah, I get it. It's Africa. simply because, because because because
2: people will invest. I, I, I'm throwing this right back at you, City, and I'm trying to call out the hypocrisy here mm-hmm. because, because, because some people haven't answered my question yet. So if you're saying that extremely wealthy families in Africa because of controversy or whatever are only investing in people that look, breathe, and act like them. So people that have made their money in oil and gas are investing in people that do business in oil and gas. People that have made money through land contracts are investing in people that build properties. Why are you finding fault for an American uh, VC that is investing in founders that know how to do VC like them? It's simple. It's because you want to make a return and you do what you know best. And the few African founders, because venture capital is so new in the African continent, let's be honest, venture capital and the concept of tech startups came out of Silicon Valley. So the African founders mm-hmm. that went to Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, understood concepts like lean startup, design thinking, product market fit, growing at all costs, uh, blitz scaling, And those are the people that can do things that work according to a Silicon Valley mindset, and they are the ones who will likely get funding because it makes money. Just as the ogres in Nigeria and Kenya and Ghana and South Africa back their own to do what they like. So I'm sorry, I'm going to call out the hypocrisy um, and put this matter to bed because I think there's, there, there are clear double standards here. And I'd love to hear the audience's opinions on this because this has that- been going on for years and no one calls out the hypocrisy on the other
0: side. So, so we have, we have, we have, uh, we have um, Taffy. So Taffy is also a fund manager. Taffy happens to sit on the. Committee of the Pitchroom Africa, Taffy, have just joined us on stage, ladies and gentlemen. Before we bring Taffy online, this is the Pitchroom Africa tonight. We're speaking to the leading angel investor in the African ecosystem, Zachariah George. Um, Taffy, do you want to unmute yourself, ask a question, um, present a case, and we go back to Zach? Taffy. It's-
5: yeah, thank you so much, C D, and hello, everyone. Hi, Zach. Um, so I actually, uh, agree with you a lot. I think that uh, a lot of the expectations that we have here are leaning on who is going to come and help us and less of how we're we going to help ourselves, right? So, yeah. for example, if we're looking at attracting investors that are coming from Europe or the US, we need to be speaking their language. We need to know what they're interested in. We need to understand how they evaluate a company for investment and ensure that we're presenting them with that. Yeah. In the same vein though, the question you're asking, Zachary, is it's perfect. It's like, why aren't we doing something about investment? Yeah, If you look at the amounts of billions that we are moving into um, the continent from just remittances, if it doesn't have to be a rich person doing it. Like, we actually yeah. have the capacity to do that. We just need to start designing vehicles that are going to um, sort of harvest that potential that we have to invest in our own businesses and start pushing those funds into the right investment channels. Yeah. I think the moment we start looking at ourselves as people with potential to solve our own problems, we're going to stop yeah. focusing on other people and saying, okay, why aren't you? us money you know like we're not entitled to their money <laughs> they, yeah, are, I mean, they I mean, have their money and they want to use it i mean i mean, uh, uh, so, 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 I mean
2: listen i mean it's it's such a good point i mean like i mean so, i mean are you are you are you from nigeria what part of the content are you from um um,
5: um uh, i'm from zimbabwe
2: from zimbabwe okay so, so so let me ask you a very direct question who's the richest personality in zimbabwe uh, from an investment perspective, you can argue, you, you can argue, you can agree that it's Strive, right? Yes. Okay. Now, how many investments has Strive made I into African that. tech entrepreneurs? How many? Can you name one or two? Uh, is there a really reason beautiful. why? I'm not. Okay, I can tell you. I mean, so Strive, as an African tech, oh, sorry, uh, uh, as someone that you know is 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 very well respected, you know, um, you know, Econet, Ecotel, all these incredible businesses, wide. Was, sorry, say that again. Hello?
5: Yeah, I'm saying nice. he's a tech guru on the
2: right? Correct. He, he's, he's, a, a, he's, a, he's, got he's a tech guru. Yeah, I mean, he's he, he's an OG. Like, everyone respects him, right? Uh, why, you know, if, if he's yeah. so great, why, why did he not invest in Flutterwave, Paystack, Kipper, Andela, and all the top tech startups in Africa, the guys who back them, are folks in America and Europe. Yeah. Like, what's up with yeah. what's up with the strives and the and the Tony Alumelus and the uh, Dangotes of the world? Where is their money sitting? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, like, come on, guys. Like, do do you require a Persian Indian guy living in South Africa to call out the hypocrisy <laughs> of the smartest <laughs> African,
1: I'm completely like to say completely something.
2: ignoring their own kind? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> I'd like to
1: say something, Zach. Um, <laughs> I'd like to say something. Um sure. I think I really understand where you're coming from. But to be honest, um like you said, venture capitalists, the whole idea around it is new, right? I mean, it's not as if it's still new, but Tony Elumelu gives out funds to entrepreneurs who are running um sole proprietorship businesses. I mean, he may not have he may not have delved fully into the startup ecosystem, but he's helping businesses that are done as sole proprietorship scale in their little, in his own little way. He okay. moved from giving um, seed funding to business owners to partnering with a global um, fund that has to even help women with funding. So there are Amazing. many yeah. people. Yeah. There are many people who. Um, there are many people or rich people in Nigeria and in Africa that are funding um, entrepreneurs, but not necessarily startup or tech startups, right? That's one thing. So I think there's a gap um, and that's basically having people who would help that information you know, that accessibility of information to these people who have the money, that's like a bridge between if someone walks up to Tony Illumino and says, let's start up a VC fund for a tech startup. And this is and this is and this is it. I'm not sure he's going to say no if he sees the viability of that business, but he's been doing his prudent um, um, business for sole proprietorship for a very long time and yep. also helping small businesses start up and it has been in existence for a very long time and has yep. helped millions of people right so, so i think the the issue is not about funding the issue is about understanding the ecosystem right because yep. just to venture no, into fund yeah so that's that's basically how i want to think about yeah. this so, no, listen, so, it's, it's so, a
2: it's a very good point it's a very good point but so then i'm saying if that is the case why are we still complaining about <laughs> foreign VCs not investing in black I mean so, like I mean do you see the hypocrisy here? I mean good good on Tony El- Elumalu for for backing SMEs and ba- and backing sole proprietorships. Why are we still
0: complaining? Like, so, like yeah. you know so Zach, um, Zach hold, hold on Taffy uh, Zach yeah. just to drop uh, just to drop another controversy um no. so the conversation becomes really really exciting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, basically, data, data coming out of, you know, a lot of investment tracking happening across the continent now. Um, we still have a huge, a huge, huge bias when it comes to even funding in terms of sex, right? So, you can see that in 2022, by the close of 2022, male-led um, startups, CEOs, uh, male-led startups, accounts for m- maybe more than ninety percent of all of the funds and female led startups only account for four percent. Is there a bias there? I'm gonna I'm
2: gonna see listen you're gonna find very few human beings on the planet that will be this this blatant and I'm glad you got me on the show because I don't have a filter. I'm gonna speak in my That's
0: why that's why you're here. I, I mean d- we are pushing, okay, are pushing these questions. So so Zach just so you know we are pushing these questions. We're pushing these questions because these, these are questions that you know and I know that are predominant in the ecosystem, right? Yep. So one of the reasons why we're having this conversation is just to have clarity in some of yep. this.
2: Yeah. Okay. So I'll, let's 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 go back to first principles, right? Basic human conditioning. People will people always feel comfortable associating with people that speak, look, talk, work, dress, feel like them. Like that's a basic human thing. As, and, and you can't change it, right? Because it's familiarity, right? So just like the way rich, wealthy families in Africa will tend to back people that do similar things to them, the same way U.S. VCs will, will typically back U.S. founders that live in Africa because they have the same ways of working as them. In the very same way, where are the women investors? Where are the female LPs? Where are the female fund managers? What percentage of fund managers in Africa or globally, by the way, the gender thing is a global thing. Globally, about two or 3% of uh, startups with female founders get VC funding, or it's even less than that. My question, I'm flipping it across. I'm the only one who calls people out on the hypocrisy. Where are the female LPs? Where are the female fund managers? If you're a female LP or a female fund manager, you will likely have more of an understanding and empathy towards a female founder. So there are extremely, extremely wealthy female family offices, female investment institutions, female-run investment institutions, and where are they investing their money? Can someone tell me where they're investing their money?
0: So I can see um, we've, we've had few people join us on stage.
2: Yeah. Um, so,
0: um... so you need to follow the money,
2: right? So mm-hmm. you can't blame. Yeah, I mean, you see where I'm going with this, right? Like yeah. you cannot look at it in isolation. You can't say female founding startups have, are, are, are biased. Well, why aren't there more female LPs? Why aren't there more female fund managers? You have mm-hmm. to look at it that way. You cannot look at a coin just from one side. Right, mm-hmm. the more female fund managers you have, the more female LPs you have, the more likelihood that you will increase the funding to female founders. I'll give you a good example of our fund. Right, our fund is 50% women, 50% men. Our LPs are more diverse than most funds will ever have. As a result, 25% of all our portfolio companies have women co founders, 25%, mm-hmm. which is no, which is still not. Great, which should be 50% in my opinion, but it's 10 times higher than the average of 2%, right? But we, gender diversity is in fund managers, in LPs and founders. You have to go across the entire value chain and not just look at founders and say, oh, we're so, you know, we're so biased against. You have to look at the entire picture. It's like saying, let's look at, let's look at a five second clip of a news article and just tweet that but forget what comes before and what comes after right
0: yeah um thank you very much um ladies and gentlemen wherever you look um, listening from whether you're here live or you're just catching up on the record this is the pitchroom africa tonight we're speaking with the top angel investor in the whole of the ecosystem the african ecosystem Zachariah george Hi. As you all know, we try to bring a little bit of controversy in our conversation. And uh, we were happy that um, Zachariah is here. He's a man who is unafraid of controversy at all. And he has his data, but he also has his work to prove his words. <laughs> Zachariah, welcome to the Petroom Africa. We have Capetini, um, Captain Ti wanting to ask a question or make a statement. Sure. Captain, you have 30 seconds. Please unmute yourself
6: and go for it. Uh, thank you C D and thank you Esther for hosting. Interesting space and um uh, it's great to, to meet you, Zachariah. Um I actually wanted to respond. I don't know if thirty seconds is enough. Uh quick intro, I'm just I'm a founder um in I'm based in Silicon Valley, but uh have roots in West Africa. And and so um I, I think they I I think there are truths to both sides of the story. And in response to what Zachariah is saying, the reason why we don't have a lot of women um and uh, I and I try I try to be as blatant as you were the re- the reason why we don't have as yeah. much women LPs is misogyny simple and we can trace this to both culture and religion the reason why we don't have as much you know black found, uh black founders or or black companies uh, invested in is racism uh so we can it's not throwing blames we can we can trace the root cause causes of all of these issues but it's simply what it is is that over time and in recent history, the geopolitics have seen that uh, black people or people who are just people of color economically are being kind of, you know, treated a certain way. And it ripples down, yep. right? The same thing with misogyny. In most cultures, in most religion, women don't have the right to own property and all of that stuff. But the good news is these things are changing and it's just yep. Yep. yeah trying to uh, cooperate and jumping to... Into ecosystems that where people don't really look like you and still uh, yeah. kind of give them the opportunity to excel
2: yeah no, I mean, listen it's it's a it's a very valid point. you'd be living under a rock if you didn't acknowledge that there is sexism and racism in the v c industry as much as there's sexism and racism in many industries right like no one is denying that right all I'm trying to say is instead of complaining about how bad it is and I, and that's a very very good point captain all i'm saying is the folks that ultimately supply capital to fund managers to startups you know in in a post colonial era we're now looking at generation 3 or generation 4 post colonialism right times have moved why don't we have young black professionals or old black professionals who are investing in funds back funds that have black fund managers? Right? So, if you look at all the black VC fund managers in Africa, from Aboyeji to Maya to, um, gosh, to Idris Bello and, gosh, Kola Aina to, I mean, like all the young black fund managers in kenya nigeria in south africa or everywhere why don't they have black lps i'm going to ask this again i I acknowledge massive racism and massive sexism which is getting better by the way and i fully agree with you but where are the black investors in those funds why are black lps still giving money to white fund managers
0: why i think we have Hamid, Hamid wants to respond to that question. Hamid, 30 seconds because um, we are quickly coming to the end of the, 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 the conversation and we still have a few questions for Zach. So Hamid, 30 seconds responding specifically to what Zach just said, so we can move on.
4: Hamid? Yeah, thanks, our uh, uh, great show. Um, so yeah, I'm Hamid, uh, originally from Sierra Leone and uh, I'm founder. Um, so I just want to say, Zachary, like I completely agree with you. Um, yeah, it's 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 the million. That's the million dollar question. Um, um, uh, you know, just like from having conversations with um, other founders or in the diaspora, or some of them who have been going back to Africa and trying to, um, you know, just like start, start up over there um on clubhouse which is another platform uh we kind of like exhausted this 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 topic but anyways like we 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 came to a consensus where it's like okay look there are people that have millions and billions in africa like africa is not poor as people may think it is yeah but i think like we have the 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 trust issue yeah um we have weak institutions um and um um, you know, with um, people that have millions and billions and, you know, like they, they want to see return on their investments, um, they want to invest it safely. Um, so, um, you know, it's lazy, but that's what they do. Um, yeah. They just um, the closest thing that I um, um, I, I came across was um, some folks from North Africa who are part of the MENA angel investor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, so, you know, like they invest in, in Morocco, Algeria, Egypt, um, sometimes they'll venture into sub-Saharan Africa, but more times than, than so, they, they would actually like go across um, and invest in Dubai, Saudi Arabia or Qatar. Uh, but you know, I don't see any reason why that can be replicated for sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but yeah, you know, like that's 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 my two cents. I think it's yeah. it's uh, it's a trust it's a trust factor. No, it's it's, a, it's it's such a good point and such a valid point. So thank you for bringing it
2: up. Maybe I'll in in response to that, I'll give you a personal story because maybe people can relate to it. So I'm 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 a person of color. I'm half Tanzanian, half Persian, and a bit of Indian in me. Right. I came to South Africa, which is, as you all know, probably the most, historically at least, the most racist country in Africa. I mean, I'm I'm sure no one's going to disagree with me on that. right? Things have gotten a lot better since apartheid, but that's just what it is. I came here 12 years ago, and I was literally the only person of color that had the balls with no prior VC experience 12 years ago to start building companies, venture labs, accelerators, and eventually a VC fund. And when I reached out to people, wealthy black South Africans in African family offices all over the continent to fund the accelerator and then the fund, I got almost 99 out of 100 no's. Because they just didn't believe in, to your point earlier, the benefits, the risk versus returns. Maybe it was an an awareness thing. Maybe it was a bias against your own, right? A lot of African families and African industries and institutions just don't believe that people that look like them can run funds. I want to challenge this to the group here. And maybe we should question our own conscious... You know, preference, sexism, racism against our own. I'm just putting it out there. It's a very controversial topic. But the majority of LPs in Startup Bootcamp, my first fund and Launch Africa were folks from Europe that didn't know me from Adam, but understood what I was doing, what my team was doing, and my team is entirely non-white. Right? And here's the question: like, why do people Struggle to understand things that don't. I, mean, I don't know, I'm, maybe I'm not making sense here, but like we really start to have to question people with capital that have made their money. And let's be honest, the majority of money sitting in Africa made by families is in minerals and natural resources. So, oil and gas, power, electricity, agriculture, mining, construction, retail where is that money going and and it's like why are black family offices backing non non black fund managers right i mean i'm the best example like i, I less than 2% of my lps are, are are black africans and i live here in south africa so let's just so let's so, so let's just as 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 let's let's but it's changing right if you look at the more recent funds there are a lot more african lps and i'm so proud of that there's a lot more collaboration between North, northern Africa, right? You're seeing prominent funds like in, in North Africa, like Sawari, African Vest, Algebra Ventures. I'm sure you guys are familiar with some of these funds that are now backing sub-Saharan black African fund managers, right? So we're seeing it happen. We're seeing a massive change now in the Middle East with sovereign wealth funds blacking black African fund managers. It's taken a while, but it's happening. So I think it's just important, guys and girls, to just be aware that sometimes when people... You know the story of the boy who cried wolf? When people complain about racism, conscious bias, sometimes they forget their own biases that they don't want to openly talk about. I may have dropped some bombs here, but just... In your own, is, the quiet of your own room, just ponder and meditate on that. You that that is, is, yourself have biases against your own. That is I that is I, that is I wish I amazing. Had a, I
0: wish I had a mic to drop right now, but, I don't, <laughs> but yes, <laughs> that was like <laughs> that was like an absolute <laughs> mic drop. So you know, because because you dropped such an amazing bomb. Um, <laughs> so let's 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 just listen very briefly to one of my favorite song from zach's um you know um cover oh my god
2: i wasn't expecting this i don't know what are you gonna play
0: Yes, so just, if, just in case you're wondering, that's actually Zachariah. That's how he sounds, by the way.
3: Thank I've, you. Watched, I've watched a
0: video of him play before, so listen and enjoy. Oh <laughs> uh, you're, you're very kind. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you're listening from, if you're joining us live, thank you for being here. But if you're just catching up on the record of this conversation, this is the Pitch Room Africa. The Pitch Room Africa brings together some of the biggest players in the African ecosystem for a weekly showdown and unfiltered conversation. Tonight, we're joined by Zachariah George. Zach um, is currently the leading angel investor in Africa, and he's also the founder of of Launch Africa. When we come back, Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the work they're doing in Launch Africa and what their investment thesis is as we come to a close to another conversation for this week. Um, But now I'll move over to my co-host, Esther Richards, to share with us um, a brief info that I would like all of you to have, including our next guest for our next episode. Esther? Hi, everyone. I
1: have had the most amazing, amazing time. Um, This is just to let us know that we're building a community. Um, Most times we get to just um, come in here and everything is over. So we're building a community on Telegram. It's just to help you have prompts so you know when we're going up and you can catch up on all um, episodes that have already gone. So it's important that you... I'm going to drop the link now. And I'm going to drop the link in our DMs as well so we can join the community and we don't get to miss anything. In the future, we hope to share resources from our speakers and resources from the African Startup Ecosystem as well. So we expect everyone on this stage and everyone here today to join. And our guest for next week is none other than Blessing Abeng. She is the co-founder for Ingressive for Good. She has an amazing, amazing background in um, startup ecosystem as well so um i just want to remind everyone here we love your commitment to what we're doing here and your support but your huge support is needed in the community so thank you very much i'm putting out the channel here the link here is going to be out here please kindly um, join the link and and join in thank you very much cd over to you try to kill it.
0: So, Zach, uh, before we get to the serious conversation about Launch Africa, sure. what sure. makes you think you could not have been, you know, the next, um, you could have been a superstar, man, in, in, in the music industry? We could have, you know, been, you know, chasing after you on Instagram and <laughs> things like that, right? And we will not be, you know, um, <laughs> cracking you up and annoying you with questions like <laughs> why are you asking? why oh, you know tell us why why what makes you think music should not be something um, you should take as seriously as you listen thank you for that question guys
2: i think uh it's it's one of my one of my hopes is that uh In fact, I've invested in two startups myself that are trying to transform the music industry. One of them is a a company called Amp, A-M-P, run by an amazing Ghanaian called Derek Ashong. I don't know if anyone knows him. And he's trying to change the way musicians can get better access to royalty and fees on on their creative content. And another company called Epic Contest that helps artists. Uh, get better publicity the reality is I mean we all know this. the music industry is controlled by big um, recording studios and producers so it's one of the few industries where talent alone gets you nowhere there are some incredibly talented artists that you know not you know to be a burner boy or to become a you know uh, a nasty C or anyone I mean whatever in the industry you need to know people and it's often more about who you know than how good you are. And as much as I love music, I think the moment you commercial you commercialize music, and this is a sad reality, a lot of people that have made it big in the music industry are forced to to do songs or productions that they don't really like. You 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 literally are owned by your record label and um, it takes away the joy of being uh, a musician. Imagine if you're a writer and your publisher told you that you can't write this. You have to write what sells. How, how would that make you feel? So I always said, because I love music so much, I never want to dilute my music by being forced to do something or sing something or write something that my heart doesn't believe. So therefore, let me make music purely a hobby and a passion and not a commercial thing. And I think I've done the right thing. Um, but yeah,
0: that, yeah. No, your music, your music is brilliant, man. I mean, you're talking about investing. Let's go into Launch Africa a little bit, right? So, twelve percent, according to Max. So, for those of you who don't know Max, uh, please follow Max Cavalier uh, or Magazine. They are the founder of African, the big deal, um, one of the top um, data provider of track, or, you know, tracking all investment Afri- happening in African. Um, space. So, according to Marx, and this was quite exciting for me because we're preparing for this conversation, um, Zach, 12% of you've been involved or your company, Launch Africa, have been involved in 12% of all equity deals that ranges from 100 k to $10 million. What is your investment thesis? And that is such a huge uh, percentage. You know, making situating Launch Africa and yourself and your partners as one of the top players in 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 the VC space in the in the ecosystem. What is your investment thesis? And what are the winning factors you look for in entrepreneurs? Yeah. yeah, I mean thank you for that
2: and thank you for catching that because not many people know know that fact. Yeah so I mean I think um before we started Launch Africa, the big gap in the market was there was a lot of funding for pre-seed entrepreneurs from accelerators from incubators the likes of you know nilab flat six labs founders factory antler startup Bootcamp, cc hub in nigeria microtraction there was a lot of funding for at the idea messed in ghana for example but you know the gap between doing sort of 5 to 10k of mrr and 100k of mrr i'm sure our listeners know what these terms are uh was entirely friends and family and angels, right? And then only when you got to 100K of MRR or, you know, sort of million dollars of ARR in a tech startup, would you be of interest to VC funds? And, you know, the the big VC funds in Africa until five years ago were Partech, TLCOM, AfricanVest, Novastar, Vested World. So pretty, you know, large funds, mostly funded by DFIs. So the likes of, I mean, as a side note, people should be aware that, like, DFIs, which is, which is predominantly NORFund, Vetfund, FMO, CDC, Proparco, DFC, you know, they they directly or indirectly have a stake in probably 80 to 90% of all tech startups in Africa, which I think, you know, is pretty crazy. Like, that shouldn't be the case. As a result, the mandates of funds are heavily skewed towards being risk-averse, being risk right? So until about three years ago when we launched Launch Africa, most VC money just went to series A and series B startups that had relatively low risk return trade-offs. And I said to that, why is that the case? The case is not the fund managers necessarily. It's because the LPs are big DFIs that will literally, most of the LPs have board seats and veto rights on deals. So you can't expect... You know, DG in Germany or CDC, I mean, now it's called BII in, in, in England or DFC, formerly OPIC in the US, to really understand early stage pre-seed and seed risk-return trade-offs. Like, it's not what they do. So the GPs were forced to be very risk-averse. So what did we do? The only way we can start investing in companies that are post-revenue so sort of doing between 10K MRR and, you know, 50K MRR, which was mostly friends and family before, is if we change our LP structure, right? So we were one of the few funds in the world based in Africa that had entirely retail LPs, right? And I cannot stress how important that is. So out of the $36 million that we raised in fund one, we were targeting 10 right? 10 to 15. All the money came from individuals, friends and family, family offices, a couple of small fund of funds. But we changed the entire way our fund structure uh, works. Our fund is in Mauritius, right? Not in the US or Luxembourg or Cayman, like a lot of VC funds are. Uh, And we don't have requirements where you have to have a million dollars of assets or $200,000 of annual income over three years to make you an accredited investor. So we set up a fund in Mauritius so that we could democratize access for LPs. So someone from Nigeria or Kenya that's living in the UK that wants to invest $50,000 into a VC fund that backs African founders could for the very first time become an LP in a fund, even though he or she may not have a million dollars in their bank account. So that was a huge change in the in the system so we 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 almost you know the whole rage against the machine thing that the song we did that in practice right so our fund one most funds have 10 to 15 lps mostly dfis and big institutions we have more than 250 250 that's not a typo lps in our fund investing as little as 25k to as much as three million Right, But we changed the system and the perception of it. Therefore, as a result of it, as GPs, we have a lot more flexibility in the kinds of entrepreneurs we can back. So we decided from day one that as a fund, we would only invest in pre-seed, seed and pre-series A companies doing, you know, we have a few pre-revenue startups, but the bulk of our startups are doing between 10K and sort of 60 to 70K MRR i'm just giving one metric right and and we decided from very early on that we would be truly truly pan african so we would not ignore countries like um sudan uh morocco tunisia you Zimbabwe, uh, Cameroon, Benin, Togo. Like, we we really are Pan-African. And the way we can be Pan-African is because we have relationships with all the local incubators, accelerators, venture builders, and even advisors, right? Because you can't invest in the whole of Africa if your team is sitting in one city, right? You'd be amazed how many VC funds in Africa the GPs are sitting in London or New York. It's fucked up, right? So we changed the system a lot of people thought we were crazy. And they, some of them even wished us, what's the opposite of wished us well, they actually hoped that we would fail. But, you know, you just have to keep being resilient, you know. And then we decided that, we, that when we backed companies, we would put our heart and soul into providing a significant amount of non-financial support to our founders, So if we invested $1 into a company, we would ensure that there was at least one more dollar worth of media, tech, legal, IP, talent sourcing, cross-border expansion, helping with corporate POC connections in addition to our capital, right? And you do that consistently. It's a lot of work. And then founders will keep referring other founders to you, right? And that's how we managed to grow very quickly over two and a half years because we wanted to be the most founder-friendly fund on the continent and focus purely on that C to Series A region. The last point I'll make, because there are a lot of things that were asked, is most VC funds will take half of their fund, if not 60% of their fund, for and reserve it for follow-on investments, <coughs> which is a great concept to have in theory because you wanna back your winners. But what's the problem with that model? The problem with that model is you're giving a lot of money to a few people, right? What we said is we wanna be able to get investments to founders in parts of Africa that have never attracted VC funding because who is funding those people right now? No one, right? So to do that, we had to, to take n- zero part of our funding for follow-ons. So as a fund, we don't follow on into existing portfolio companies. Not because we don't like them, but because we want to make sure that the pot is bigger for everyone. And that's the reason why we've done 130 deals in the last two and a half years. is because we want to make sure that we are truly Pan-African. And the companies that do need follow-on funding... We are very happy to refer to our LPs who can come in and take part in the follow-on rounds. So we sort of achieved both objectives, but at the same time, we're very inclusive. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll sort of stop there, but that's a whole bunch of rationale as to what our investment thesis was
0: um, in the last two and a half years. Yeah, it, make, it makes sense. So so, um, Zach, thank you so much for being here. This conversation was meant to be for an hour. You've been here for an hour, 30 minutes. It's been quite exciting, um, really. Thank you, everyone that is joining in. Um, We do have um, friends. We do have um, Damilari from Tech Cabal. I see you on the listening. Um, You have refused to come on stage, (laughs) but thank you for being here. Um, Zach, so two more questions before we round up. sure. sure. Um, one question um, one question that I have is is coming from a speech that I saw um, that I jo- I watched researching um, for this conversation that you gave some time ago talking about uh, the five components of a thriving ecosystem yeah um, specifically uh, you mentioned of course the talent um, the risk capital, the yeah. corporate um, startup collaboration, the acceleration, the government support. Um, but what one of the things that I want to just touch on a little bit, or I would like you to just touch on, is the corporate startup collaboration. And the reason why I want you to touch on this is because there's a lot of, um, as you know, there's so much happening in the ecosystem outside the big four, the usual names. Um, but startup, um, the corporate startup collaboration is something that you explain so uniquely and I still think it has the potential or the ability to transform the ecosystem, especially in more traditional ecosystems like um, Sierra Leone, the Guinea, the Liberia, um, you know places that you will normally not hear of, but entrepreneurs there are killing it how how do we win with these guys how do we convince them to come to come on board yeah it's a
2: fantastic question yeah i think i think one one advantage that africa has is corporates in africa are a lot more homogenous than corporates in europe right so for i gave this i gave this example just a couple of days ago to someone from uh, a very prominent bank in europe so if you look at the telco sector, you've got about four or five major telcos in Africa, right? MTN, Vodacom, Airtel, Tigo, Orange, right? Basically those five, and you know may- maybe a couple of small ones. Similarly with insurance, you've got Old well, Mutual, Sunlam, um, you know Discovery, Bima, and like a few more. And banks also, Eco. Uh, yeah, I mean you know you see where I'm going Stanbic um first round etc so a lot of the banking insurance um telco and to to a certain extent the retail sector in africa is a lot more homogenous what that means is um if you're selling a b2b solution or a b2b to c solution if you have a large telco or a bank as your partner you can scale into multiple countries through their distribution channels provided this is a big proviso, that you can share revenue with them, either through a joint venture, through a licensing agreement, or through a white-label platform. Um, You can scale through their distribution systems, right? So in markets like Liberia, Sierra Leone, the Gambia, Senegal, etc., Senegal is a lot more advanced, but to reach new markets, right?, you don't have to open up new branches offices hire people you can do so through intermediaries and the intermediaries are these telcos right so for example if you're in um, you're an insurtech startup in south africa uh, and you're helping to create a portal where you know brokers can use a digital platform to onboard customers right and that's your ip And you want to work with Old Mutual, which is one of the largest insurers on the continent, and you want to expand to East Africa, before setting up a single entity, branch, office, or hiring people, all you have to do is speak to UAP, because UAP is a fully-owned subsidiary of Old Mutual, and ask them to give you access to their network of brokers in Kenya, and incentivize UAP through a revenue-sharing agreement. But you have to sacrifice margin for volume. And a lot of founders believe that they want to control the entire value chain and keep all the margin to themselves. And then, yes, you might make margin in the short term, but you're going to not lose out. You're going to lose out because you can't get access to scale. But the smart startups will say, hey, no, listen, you know, I'm not present in East Africa and I'm going to share my revenue with a big insurer that can help me, even if it means that I don't own the customer, but now I own distribution. Right. So I think that's something like, I mean, if you look at how Flutterwave ex- has expanded all over Africa, it's a brilliant story. It's through partnerships with large corporates and banks. Um, and I think some startups that don't understand how to scale through corporate partnerships are missing out on a trick. And I wish this was something that could be taught in school or an entrepreneurial school, Uh And it it would just prevent founders from making mistakes like this.
0: Um, Thank you so much, um, Zach. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, if you're joining us now, we're coming to the end of our conversation. Um, Tonight, we've been privileged to host Zachariah George, who happens to be the co-founder of Launch Africa and also its managing partner. Zachariah has, in fact, been named as Africa's top angel investor he's a man of a lot of accolades he's actually backed some of africa's largest um startups from flutterwave kuda bank market force Peach payment and a lot more in 2018 as a matter of fact zach was actually co-featured on the cover of fast company um, africa zach is extraordinary we've actually had some really really insanely great brutal conversation on this uh, <laughs> on here tonight but one yeah. of the things that is so cool about Zach that you know I've actually I came to know of Zach working across the African ecosystem um, accelerated working in accelerators and incubation incubators but I fell in love with his music and uh, my favorite music is hurt by and i'm happy to share that with you even as we close the curtain but before we do um just one last question for zacharia sure please. um zacharia if there is any entrepreneur on the call at the moment wanting to reach out to you how would they be able to do that and what are what are some of the things that you look out for in a pitch deck that makes you want to talk
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm happy for people to reach out to me. I just want to preface with the fact that, um, you know, I'm 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 happy to have coffee meetings and chats with people. I just want to be very, you know, mindful of everyone's time here. And the reality is, venture is a very very. Um, it's not for everyone. Uh, I was I should give a talk last night at, at Innovation City in Cape Town. I'm talking about,
6: you know, unless you can
2: get to. You know, a hundred million dollar valuation within three to four years. VC's really a VC is probably the worst place to go for your for your, you know, for your first or second round of funding. So I'm happy to talk to people, go through their business models and plans for a few minutes. But you know, the the percentage of startups that are that are truly a fit for VC is actually really, really small. Um and I think a key wisdom that i would say is founders should really start doing a lot more research on vcs their mandates and most importantly their portfolio companies the best way to understand how a vc thinks is to look at their portfolio companies you know if you look at all our portfolio companies and think of when we backed them why we backed them and where they are today that gives you an incredible proxy for what our next possible deals will be Right, so I think a little bit more research needs to be done by founders, and time needs to be spent almost deeding a VC before approaching them. But that being said, I'm happy to talk to to folks here in the next few weeks uh, if it's giving them advice on on on, on anything. So, uh, and then to... one, and then just one last thing, Citi, I wanted to apologize. If I offended anyone when I was talking about all the the controversies in funding in Africa no. the virus and everything, I hope I didn't upset anyone. I was just speaking from no the heart way. Trying to, yeah,
0: I, no, I hope not. If that,
4: anyone, sorry.
0: Not at all. This is definitely not the last time we're going to have you on the Patreon africa it mm-hmm. is <laughs> the first but one of the things that one of the things that i want you to know is on here if you follow all of the conversation that we try to have here we try to ensure that it it doesn't follow the status quo so it's honest it's brutal is you know it, it's sprinkled with a little bit of controversy and the reason why we okay, want cool. that to happen is because we have an audience that's listening across the continent and we understand that entrepreneurship it's not all roses, and often at times people are people have like this scale in their eyes. They look at entrepreneurship from the from what they see on social media, and then they think about um people like yourself as not human beings, but just um dollar sign. This is why I'm so excited to share that. As a matter of fact, Zach is a rock star, he's a yeah. musician, he's also you know a geek, so he's not only dollar signs, right? And he... <laughs> And he's also proving to us that he's unafraid to touch controversy. So thank you very much for being here, Um, Zach. I hope you enjoy um, Cape Town. I hope you enjoy your wonderful family. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, this is the from Africa. But before you go, enjoy this song by Zachariah George. Thanks, everyone. Have a good evening. Night, everyone. Until we meet next week when we host Blessing Aben from Ingressive Capital. From all of us at the Petrum Africa, have a wonderful night.
1: Good night, everyone. Bye, CD.